many Christians today looking around at the world and the worldliness that they see around them and thinking about the charge that we have to teach folks the gospel often become discouraged. And they seem to believe that there's not much that we can accomplish against such sin and worldliness. After all, how can we, just a small group of people, get out there and attack the worldliness and the error and sin that plagues this world? Margaret Mead, in fact, I believe she's an atheist, but unwittingly might give us a little help here. An American anthropologist, she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I think we need to understand that. A small group, and of course, obviously, small is subjective, but a small group of people are those who have caused every change. Most world changes have begun with even just one person who is able to get a small group of people to buy in, who were able to get more small groups of people to buy in, and on it went. And I think that we need to recognize today that no matter how large or small we as a congregation might be, if we're thoughtful, if we're committed, we can, in fact, change the world. And the reason I believe that we can do that is because we've all seen it done before. As we look here in the book of Acts. And so this evening, as we study our Bibles, I'd like for us to look at the book of Acts. And I'd like for us to notice the growth that took place in the book of Acts. And I want us to remember that what started began with a small group of people. But before we begin to look at all the growth that took place in Acts, I want us to note some similarities between what happened then and today. I, first of all, would like us to note the kind of people that they had to deal with. We seem to have this idea today that they dealt with different kinds of people. It was easier for them because they had different kinds of people. The fact is, they had the same kinds of people then that we have today. We'll notice from Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that in fact there were some who wanted to seek and serve the living God. In Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1, notice this. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the... Whoops, accidentally turned two pages there to the people, and prayed to God always. He was a man that wasn't quite sure what he was supposed to do, but he knew that God was there and he wanted to serve Him, and he was seeking Him. There are folks like that today. You may not believe they exist, but there are. I've met them. You've met them. You just may not know it. It may take some work, and it may take some time for us to find them and to weed through all the others that are out there, but there are folks out there that want to serve God. 
we'll notice that there were folks who were already devoted to a religion. Look in Acts chapter 2. Do you realize that on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, what were all these men who were filling the city, these people that were there? Acts 2, 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These were people that were already devoted to another religion. They were devoted to Judaism. They were not prepared to come in here on this day in Pentecost and to change their lives around completely. They were not prepared to be told that what they were doing was no longer enough. They were not prepared to be told that they had to change churches, you might say. They were devoted to religion. They were devoted to God. We also find that these early Christians had to deal with folks that were atheists and pagans, skeptics. Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16, now while Paul waited for them, Acts 17, 16, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached them Jesus in the resurrection. These early Christians, they dealt with folks that were skeptics. They dealt with folks that were atheists and pagans. They dealt with the exact same kinds of people that we deal with today. And they had success. If they could have success, what about us? We're dealing with the same kinds of people. We ought to be able to teach the same gospel and save people just as they did. And let's consider what kind of responses that they had. Because, in fact, what we'll find is they had the same kinds of responses as we have today. And I think we need to recognize this because I believe that at times we look at the Bible and think that all they had was just unending success. I mean, the first day they had 3,000. How about that? And constantly we just see more and more and more who were added. Well, in fact, they did have success. But some rejected. Look in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, as Paul was preaching on Mars Hill, he got to the resurrection and in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Sure, they had a great deal of success. But they had a lot of people that mocked. A lot of people that heard what they had to say and they laughed at them. Oh, one of the big things that I hear from folks today is, well, if we teach that, folks will think we're crazy. Well, when Paul thought about the resurrection, folks thought he was crazy. When he told them about Jesus who was God in the flesh that came down and lived and died and was resurrected, they thought he was crazy. And some of them rejected. Keep reading. It says, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this matter. There were some who were skeptical. Don't we have those kinds of people today? There's some that haven't just outright rejected the gospel, but they're kind of skeptical. They've seen too many televangelists. 
They've seen them fall. They've had too many people knock on their doors that seemed to sell a good teaching, and yet when they examined it, found out how false it was. And so they're skeptical. And so we might begin to teach them, and they kind of want to hold back. They want to hear some more, and they want to hear some more. They don't want to commit right now, because they really don't know us that well. They haven't rejected, but we probably don't claim that as much of a success, and yet it is. But they had the same kinds of people. They had people that heard the gospel and said, well, I'm going to have to hear some more. I'm just not sure about this yet. But they also had folks that accepted. Here in this great city, you'll notice in verse 34, it said, however, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There were some who believed. And there are some today who will believe. There are folks who hear the gospel and obey the gospel. Now, it takes time for us to find them. But they're there. And it's not different today than it was back at this time. They dealt with the same things we deal with. They had the same responses that we get. And what did they do? They kept on teaching. For a few moments, what I'd like for us to do is take a look through the book of Acts. And this is going to be very fast because we're running through the entire book. And I want us to note these people who had the same kinds of folks they were dealing with, who had the same kind of responses, I want you to notice what they did. And I'm just going to put the verse up on the screen and give a quick summary because Really, all the verses that we're going to look at here, there's really not time for us to read them. It'd get kind of confusing and overwhelming if we tried to read all of them. But I want you to notice in Acts chapter 1 and verse 15, that as the church began, there were 120 disciples. A small group. I look back on our attendance chart, I understand that we had 124 here this morning. Seems kind of similar. But of course, we know what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. There were about 3,000 saved. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, the Scripture tells us that the number of disciples, men, totaled 5,000. You realize when he points out that there were 5,000 men, he's not even counting the women. Not even counting their kids that were coming along with them growing up in the church, so to speak. And so you might have had around 10,000. That's a conservative number. We could probably even go up as high as 15,000 as far as those that were there. Can you imagine a congregation that size? That's what they had in Jerusalem. They had in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. On top of these 5,000, upwards of 10,000, they had multitudes that were added, still in the same congregation surrounding cities. Folks outside of Jerusalem learning about what was going on in Jerusalem coming in to be a part of that church. Boy, I tell you what, we are in a day and age where that very thing happens. We're no longer in the day and age of the community church where you need to have a church on every corner. Because folks travel. How many of you drive at least 30 minutes to go to work? Do you have See? Folks do that. That's nothing. We don't have to have a church every ten blocks. 
We can affect even the surrounding cities just like they did in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, notice that some of the Jewish priests, they even converted some of those who were the most devoted to the other religions. And then in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, a very terrible thing occurred. Persecution started. The church was persecuted in Jerusalem. Remember, Stephen was stoned to death and the disciples were scattered. But do you remember what Paul said in Romans 8.28? As he pointed out that all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those who love the Lord. And in fact, this seemingly terrible thing was actually a great blessing because this gospel that had now at this point been restricted in Jerusalem and maybe some of the surrounding cities, the folks who had learned that gospel, now went out into distant lands. They traveled from Jerusalem and the Scripture says that they went teaching everywhere they went. And now this gospel has been taken out away from the city. Remember though, it just started with 120 folks. But we'll read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, verses 12 and 13, the gospel went to Samaria. Because of the work done in Jerusalem. Remember, this all started in Jerusalem. Everything we see here happened because of what started in Jerusalem with a small number of people. The Scripture goes on in Acts 8, 26 through 28. We read about the Ethiopian eunuch who was baptized into Christ by Philip. What do you think he did with the gospel? I kind of believe that he probably went on down into Africa back to do his job as the treasurer. And I imagine he got things started down there. We continue on in the book of Acts and come to Acts chapter 8 and verse 40. And we find out that there's churches established in two other cities, Azotus and Caesarea. We find a church, Acts 9, 23-25, in Damascus. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 32, there's a church in another city, in Lydda. In 9.35, there's a church in the nearby city of Sharon. In chapter 9, verses 36 and 42, in Joppa. And then in Acts chapter 10, an amazing thing happens. They found out that it wasn't just for Jews. Gentiles could also be converted. Racial barriers were broken down. Do you realize how tough this would be for Jews and Gentiles to start worshiping together? to start being in the same congregation. I imagine there were some of the Jews as they were at that meeting with Peter who said something like, Peter, if you start letting them come in, they'll take over. And you know, that's what we've done. Because here we are, all Gentiles. But we're all still saved, aren't we? The Gospel continued on even from here. And in Acts chapter 11, verses 20 through 26, we learn about the church in Syrian Antioch. In Acts 13, verses 4 through 6, and then 12, it gets out to the island of Cyprus. We see a Christian on, in Paphos on Cyprus. Acts chapter 13, verse 14, 42 to 43, we see Christians in Pisidian Antioch. Acts 14, 1, in Iconian. Acts chapter 14, verse 8, 19 through 20, Lystra. In Acts chapter 14, verses 20 through 21, we've got Derby. Acts chapter 14, 21 through 23, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Silas going back. I'm going to get it right here in a second. Paul and Barnabas going back on their first missionary journey. Head back through the churches. You see what they did? They appointed elders in every church. Didn't take them that long. And of course, I believe that there were some special reasons for that. I recognize that many of the men were already very spiritually minded, having been devoted to the old law. They just needed to understand its fulfillment and might be ready-made, qualified men as elders. I also believe that there was probably some issue of the miraculous gifts. 
But what we need to understand is the importance of God's government. He expects elders in every church. There may be periods of times where churches are governed without elders, but that's not the way God wants it. Not ultimately. That's not His goal. Paul and Barnabas, as they were on this trip, they appointed elders in every church. What great growth. Not just numerical, but spiritual. You see that? Of course, the fact is, brethren, if we're growing spiritually, guess what else we're going to do? We'll grow numerically. They go hand in hand. We continue on in the book of Acts and we find in Acts chapter 16, verses 32 through 34, a church in Philippi. Acts 17, verses 1 and 4 in Thessalonica. Acts 17, verses 10 and through 12, we've got Berea. Remember, they were the ones who were more noble-minded because they searched the Scriptures daily. Acts 17, verses 16 34, we've got a church in Athens over in Greece. Corinth and Acts 18, verses 1 through 8, we're now into Europe, is what we find here when we get into Greece. Acts 18, verses 18 through 21, Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, verses 6 through 7, Troas. And of course, that's where we find our example and understand how we're supposed to participate in the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. We continue on as we go through the book of Acts and we find in Acts chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, a church in Tyre. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 7, Ptolemaeus. In Acts chapter 27 and verse 3, Sidon. In Acts chapter 28, verses 13 through 14, a city named Pudioli. How would you like to say that you were from there? Where are you from? I'm from Pudioli. Near Nashville. Could you imagine that? Acts chapter 28, verses 15 through 16, the church has made it to the very center of the world. In Rome, the capital of the world, starts off in backwoods, backwater Jerusalem over in that part of the world. Nobody really wants to go because those Jews are always causing problems. And now it's in the very heart of the world, all the way to Rome. But where did it start? It started with 120 people who were teaching the gospel. It started with folks who were committed to doing the will of God and obeying what He said, waiting on the Lord. And look at all these places where the gospel went because of what this small group of committed people did. How did they accomplish this? It's kind of overwhelming looking at this list. I highly doubt that you remember half of those cities really don't necessarily need to. It's just to see it. Look at where it all went and what started with just this small group of people. How did they accomplish this? One of the good things about having slides is if you accidentally skip part of your outline, a slide is going to come up to remind you. It says that they turned the world upside down in Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. Those are the enemies speaking. They turned the world upside down. Those folks who turned the world upside down have come even here because they were committed to the gospel. Now, how did they accomplish all of this? How did they change the world? They changed the world because they didn't try to change the world. They changed individuals. They didn't spend their time looking at all the world and how bad it was and wondering, what are we going to do about all this? They worked one person at a time. I understand there were groups at times that were converted. But initially, the world was changed one person at a time. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
Verse 22, every person that followed this, put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what they were focusing on. They didn't talk about society. They didn't look at societal change. They weren't about societal reform. They were about one person at a time putting off the old man, putting on the new man. And as more and more people did that, the world was changed. And that chain continued on as people continued being committed to talking to one person at a time. Until it got all the way down here to us. And somebody taught us to put off the old man and put on the new man. Aren't you glad that those folks were that committed to do that? They did it by teaching. They did it by teaching the gospel. And we have to understand that. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. If you read from cover to cover in the book of Acts, you know what you won't find? You won't find these folks in the book of Acts storming Rome trying to change legislation. You won't see these folks in the book of Acts trying to set up some kind of super organization among the churches. You won't see the folks in the book of Acts writing creeds and setting up councils of men that are supposed to let us know what we're going to do. You won't find the folks in the book of Acts building family life centers. You won't find them getting involved in social reform. You won't see any of that. What you'll see is people who taught the Gospel. That was their job. That was what they were doing. They went everywhere preaching the Word. In Acts chapter 2, those 3,000 that were saved, how was it done? Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. He taught them. Acts chapter 8, remember we learned about the Samaritans. How did that happen? Verse 5 of Acts 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. The Ethiopian eunuch, Acts 8.35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture, preached Jesus to him. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, he was told, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The Gentile, Cornelius, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 13 and 14, we're told that the angel told him, send them to Joppa. Call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. We can go through it time after time. They changed people by teaching. That's the only way we can do it today, is by teaching people. Letting them know what God has to offer. Teach them the gospel. Far too many churches today, they don't want to tell people what Jesus has to offer for folks' souls' eternal destiny. 
They're all bound up in what does the church have to offer me and my family? What kind of youth group? What kind of education plan? What kind of uh, activities do you have? Do you have something for our family where we can get together and have a good time? Do you have something for our family to keep our kids off the street for us? What do you have for us? If we want people to be saved, then what we need to have for them is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to teach them. Because that is what saves souls. That's how the folks back in Acts did it. They saved souls by teaching the Gospel. They didn't try to lure people in with enticing things. And then say, oh, by the way, can we tell you to be baptized? They didn't do that. They taught the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally... They were able to do this because they realized that they weren't the ones doing the changing anyway. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. They understood that this success wasn't because of them. Let's face it, it's too overwhelming for us. The change came because of God. God was the one giving the increase. And when we look at the individuals whose lives we want to change, we need to see ourselves as simply God's tools. He's provided the gospel that will change lives. Our job is just to teach it. Leave the rest up to God. He's the one that gives the increase. We're not on our own here. We're not by ourselves trying to accomplish all of this. God is with us. And these brethren back during the New Testament, they understood that they could do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Philippians 4.13 They understood Ephesians 3.20 and 21 where it points out that God can do more than we ask or think by the power working in us. They knew God was with them. And they knew that they could do it because God was on their side. And they were able to do this because they knew they weren't the ones doing the hard part. It's really not all that hard opening up the Bible and showing somebody what Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 says. You know what's hard? What's hard is providing the sacrifice that when they obey Acts 2.38 will wash their sins away. That's, that's what's hard. And God already did that part. That's what's amazing. Can we grow? Can we affect the world? We certainly can. We'll do it one individual at a time. Teaching them the Gospel. Trusting in God. And we can do that. I think we can. What do you think? Pull out your songbooks.